Hi everyone and welcome to the All Plane Podcast, where we talk with the movers and shakers that are redefining the future of commercial aviation. As usual, before we start, I would like to remind you that all previous episodes of this podcast, as well as many other aviation stories, are available on the All Plane website. That's allplane.tv. A TV. Our guest today is Alexei Matyushev, founder and CEO of Nautilus, a Californian startup that is developing a truly disruptive air freighter concept. Alexei, who has an engineering degree from Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University, has been working at the technological frontier of aerospace science, both in civilian and military aircraft programs. His current project, Nautilus, is named minus the letter U, after the fictional craft devised by Jules Verne in his novel 20,000 Leagues Under the Seas. But rather than a submarine, what Nautilus is developing is an entire family of blended wing body aircraft designed to carry primarily air cargo. A blended wing body is a type of aircraft where there is no clear distinction between the fuselage and the wings. This gives the Nautilus family of aircraft an obviously futuristic look. But this is far from being the only truly revolutionary aspect of what Alexei and his team are trying to achieve. The Nautilus family of aircraft are also designed to have a very large degree of autonomy, so if regulators approve, they will be able to operate without any human on board. Nautilus is also working with partners to incorporate hydrogen propulsion as soon as this technology becomes commercially available. So, quite a lot going on, but despite its moonshot nature, or perhaps more accurately, because of it, the Nautilus project has caught the attention of quite a few leading technology investors, and it has also racked up orders north of $8 billion in pre-orders from several air cargo industry operators. But I think it is best if we hear it all directly from Alexei. So, without further ado, let me welcome him to the podcast. Hello, Alexei. How are you? Hey, doing well, Mikhail. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for making time to be here on the podcast today. This has been, uh, I guess, a, a good week for you guys and Natilus because you just announced uh, a new order for your very innovative cargo aircraft. But let me just make a short introduction. You are basically the founder uh, and the CEO of Natilus, which is a startup based in the San Diego area in California, developing a new family, a new generation, a family of autonomous aircraft. There are quite a few aspects here that are very innovative, uh, autonomy, sustainability, and also the, yeah, the concept of developing a, a whole new family of aircraft that are designed specifically for, for the cargo market. Um, so the company is called Natilus, and well, like every other guest, I, I would like you just start by uh, explaining us a little bit about, first about yourself, uh, your background, and how you ended up starting this company, and then maybe we can move on to the, the story of the company and where are you now in terms of development and, and the next milestones. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, thank you so much for having me here. Uh, a little bit about my background. So I graduated from Embry-Riddle University here in the United States uh, with a degree in, in aerospace engineering, uh, specialization in aerodynamics. Uh, and that's actually where I met my co-founder, Anatoly. So I've known him for quite a long time. And then um, this was uh, kind of like in the early 2000s, uh, well, actually late 2000s, early 2010s. And uh, the very light jet wars were starting to come alive. So uh, a lot of the Cessna companies, Cirrus, Diamond, and Piper were building uh, a family of these very light jets, um, kind of almost indicative of what we see today with the EV tolls, uh, trying to darken the skies and create a day, uh, day taxi type of operation. So 
uh, got brought board, uh, got brought on board the program relatively quickly. Um, and uh, my first couple of months, I kind of got kicked into doing a wind tunnel test, which was very exciting. So learned quite a bit at Piper, uh, became head of aerodynamics there uh, relatively early, um, got to see a lot of really cool concepts go from clean sheet all the way through certification, helped have a, a really large role in a lot of those, uh, learned quite a bit through just not only um, the, the wind tunnel testing, but also the aerodynamics of flight testing, seeing how everything kind of jives together. And then uh, it was kind of time to find something new. And so uh, I got recruited to go work on the West Coast, uh, specifically military projects, uh, doing cutting edge on man technology, uh, and specifically working with the likes of Skunk Works to help develop some very innovative concepts uh, for the Department of Defense. And so I did that for quite a while. Uh, the, some of the programs have now been declassified, but kind of represent some of the more cutting edge, I would say, novel technologies, both for unmanned, as well as rapid prototyping, uh, specifically in carbon fiber uh, in the industry here in the United States. And then um, got kind of tired of sleeping under my desk, uh, you know, designing these multi-million dollar airplanes and I never get to really fly on them. So I uh, have an entrepreneurial spirit. I started an industrial design firm. And at that point, uh, Kickstarter was really on the up and up here in the United States. Uh, they were one of the first kind of platforms to allow for hardware projects to be let on. And so I uh, kind of teamed up with another individual to work on uh, iPad amplifiers. And so uh, we did that successfully and grew that into a very successful product platform, uh, went into charging cables, uh, also just uh, wall chargers as well for, uh, for e-commerce and whatnot. And um, so grew that into a successful business, but we kind of stumbled upon this really fundamental challenge of how to move goods over from Asia to United States. And uh, being an e-commerce platform, we, we kind of had uh, two facets of it, of course, doing the engineering work in the United States, but manufacturing over in Asia. And then we would ship internationally a lot of our products, but 30% of our business was international. And so uh, kind of trying to bring goods from Asia over a lot of the retail partners that we were dealing with wanted a product next week. And so as uh, the, the factory was uh, producing those pieces, uh, we had to get them over really quickly, but the only way to deal was via air freight. And so we would lose all our money on moving the goods by air freight. Uh, and yeah. of course, we were splitting some of the loads by ocean. And so that's kind of how the genesis of the idea of the company came about. And then the last piece of the puzzle, too, was, uh, of course, shipping to international customers. A product might be, you know, 15 U.S. dollars, but the shipping would be $35 to go into Europe or, you know, to, to India or, you know, uh, Israel and whatnot. And so nobody really wanted to purchase a $15 product and pay double almost of that as far as shipping goes. And so we saw the problem kind of in the logistical space on both sides of the, the puzzle. And so that really was kind of got us thinking is how maybe you could uh, change the, the unit economics, uh, essentially trying to capture the timeliness of air freight, but more at a cost point closer to ocean freight. Mm -hmm. And so essentially that was uh, the really big idea behind Nautilus when we started it. And I think still very a very current issue because we are seeing right now lots of disruption, the supply chains because of uh, geopolitics and wars, uh, piracy, all all sort of different things that <laughs> can happen to to ships when they are uh, moving around the world and and sometimes in in travel areas. Um, yeah, so. You started with this idea of basically um, simplifying the logistics between the U.S. and Asia, because I think your very first concept, at least from what I read, was to do some sort of seaplane taking off from the open seas, I think, and then just to uh, make it more agile, I, I guess, not using airports, but just uh, going from port to port. But then I think that has changed since since that very initial idea. Is that right? 
Yeah, it was. So uh, we thought we were really clever when we started the company. Um, there's actually a, a loophole in um, the FAA regulations. It's not you know a loophole, but it's just kind of a different way of thinking about it. Whereas a, a wing and ground effect vehicle, which is an airplane that flies you know within one wingspan of uh, of the water or the ground, um, is actually certified by the Coast Guard. And so you don't have to deal with the FAA. You don't have to deal with uh, a lot of the heavy regulatory basis that they can kind of impose on you. And so it felt like the path to market um, and uh, was a lot cheaper and faster. And so especially raising money from Silicon Valley, it's it's always a question of how quickly you can get to market. And so uh, the idea was, you know, look, we're interfacing with cargo containers at port anyway. Why don't we interface with, you know, air freight shipping at port as well? And so uh, we ended up building a, a prototype, a seaplane prototype. But as we were building the prototype, we started talking with our future customers, uh, such as integrators like the UPSs and the FedExes of the world, uh, as well as major airlines. And um, it kind of became really clear that uh, a lot of these airlines, they built up infrastructure in landlocked areas. And so they don't really interface with port. And so for them, it would be a fundamental shift in their business uh, to send cargo towards the port. And it would kind of uh, almost, um, it was just a, a non-starter for them. It's, it felt like a separate new product. Nobody knew what exactly it could be. Uh, and then as well as um, there are some challenges, especially with loading up airplanes at, at ports. Uh, what if, you know, the, there's a wave and the airplane, you know, breaks a wing or something like that, it could sink. So there's a lot of things that we we thought that we could, you know, from an engineering mindset could essentially handle. But at the same time, we had just this huge pushback from customers that this is not the right interface point for us for air freight. Mm -hmm. um, and so we, we kind of shifted uh, the, the product. We gained one more insight uh, as far as that goes. And then um, essentially brought into a family of blended wing bodies, addressing kind of all those key concerns that they really had. Uh, I guess following the Silicon Valley mantra, of, you know, really listen to your customers uh, and shaping the product. And so that's kind of where the direction ended up today. Mm -hmm. Yeah, indeed. Um, actually, uh, we must point out that uh, there's a couple of startups in the U.S. that are currently pursuing this uh ground effect vehicle concept uh one of them region actually it's it's doing quite quite a lot of progress lately uh but they don't plan to carry goods across the uh, pacific ocean at least not yet <laughs> i think they are they have, they have a different concept of moving people and coastal community along coastal communities and all that but um yeah that's a, that's an interesting that's another interesting um technology that is being currently being developed as well um, but then let's move back to your, your your project, how it evolved. Because you mentioned the the blended wing body concept. One of the things that basically stand out when when you look at what you guys are designing is this precisely this. Well, there are a few things. One is the the blended wing body concept. It looks a bit like the B two bomber or this kind of plane that is just like a wing. I think that's a concept that has been um, studied by Boeing and one of some of the major. Uh, aircraft makers with the idea of developing an airliner. I think at some point in the late 90s, there was even a, a, a pretty advanced proposal to make it a reality that didn't, didn't fructify. Why did you opt for this concept? Because it looks like it adds a level of complexity here. Right. So uh, you kind of hit, hit the nail on the head. So the blender wing body has been um, studied for quite a long time uh, for a variety of reasons. It makes for kind of a bad passenger airplane. So uh, just for your audience, the genesis of the blender wing bodies was started in McDonnell Douglas uh, out of the Long Beach office here in California. And they got it a pretty advanced studies done on it. So they identified a couple of key problems surrounding it. Uh, the first one was the pressurization aspect of it. The second one was the stability. So uh, both longitudinal and directional stability challenges. And then 
Uh, the third uh, problem was kind of operationally. Uh, it had larger wingspans. And then also uh, the most important thing was uh, when the airplane banks, uh, the passengers that sit on the outboard side are closer to the windows. They experience uh, more than normal or higher G-forces. And so that's really kind of, uh, along with the last problem, I guess, is being ingress because it was hard to get uh, all the passengers out in 90 seconds or less out of the airplane as well. Uh, kind of really uh, put a lot of hurdles uh, on the on the concept uh, in general. And so what happened was then uh, Boeing purchased McDonnell Douglas and of course, two different engineering teams with two different, um, I guess, mental approaches to it. Uh, the Seattle office absolutely hated the idea as uh, the McDonnell engineers kind of came into, into Boeing. And so it was really quickly squashed, uh, but not before uh, NASA teamed up with what the, the engineering team was at that point to build a, a scale prototype of it, right? And so that flew in the early 19, I'm sorry, late 1990s, early 2000s. Um, and so a lot of data was available, but uh, a lot of that data is proprietary. So they would show you trends in the technical papers, but never the numbers. So nobody really knew how good it was, except the, you know, the, the Boeing and NASA where the papers and the data actually was held. Aren't there already lots of data points based on some planes with this structure that have flown, like the B-2 bomber, for example, the new bomber, I, I don't remember the name, B-21, I think it follows a, kind of the same concept. I think even the Germans had one uh, blended wing body concept during the Second World War that I don't I don't know if it, it managed to fly at the end or not, just towards the end of the war. And then scale models, like, I think Delft University in the Netherlands, they tested as well a, a, a really small scale model uh, not long ago. So... Is this something that, from a structural aerodynamic point of view, are there many unknowns there? Well, I guess uh, taking a step back, uh, maybe a better question to start out with is uh, what is a blended wing body? Like, what do we actually classify as a blended wing body? And uh, unfortunately, no, but not like the, uh, the aerodynamicists got together and created a definition just yet. So it's kind of been really loose. Um, but from my perspective, uh, a flying wing uh, is something like the B-2 bomber, like the B-21 Raider recently, and a lot of the German uh, prototypes as well as what Jack Northrop did, is where uh, the, the the lift of the airplane uh, is actually coming 100% from, from the fuselage wing combination, right? And so it's almost ubiquitously a flying wing. Um, whereas a blended wing body, uh, the idea is you take a flying wing platform, but you inject a fuselage section inside of it. And so... The fuselage section and the wing um, behave similarly, but not exactly the same, both from an aerodynamic perspective. So to kind of give you a perspective uh, in a more, I guess, uh, numbers context. So like a tube and wing airplane, uh, the wing produces 90% of the lift, the fuselage produces 10. Um, on a blended wing body, you have a 50-50 split typically where the wing is producing 50, the fuselage is producing 50, and there's a distinctive fuselage. And then you have like the flying wing concept, whereas the, the entire fuselage wing combo, there's really not a good uh, separation there. And so it's a wing uh, that's producing 100% of the lift. Mm -hmm. And so uh, there's the kind of like in the spectrum of the blender wing body concepts, there really hasn't been a full scale uh, prototype ever flown. Um, we've kind of briefly mentioned the NASA and the Boeing lookalike. I think that was the closest representation of a blender wing body. Uh, How big was that, that scale model? Yeah, that's the model. But like, if you think about the the University of Delft concept, that was a flying V wing, uh, and okay. so I classify it as a wing, not particularly as a blended wing body concept. And but so that so, NASA one, how how big was it? Is it it was like a like a real like a toy plane, or was like a something of certain entity? <laughs> yeah, they really pushed it. I think um, 
don't quote me on this, but I think it was closer to 20, maybe 25 foot in wingspan. So okay. although it had, you know, pieces of RC inside of it, it started to look like very representative and very large, I would mm -hmm. say. Um, they really tried to push it with as much funding as they could to get the data that they needed. Okay. But, um, that concept, just to kind of close that out, is uh, ended up kind of solidifying a lot of the big unknowns that they had with stability, spin characteristics, uh, and then like the flight control laws slash stalls. And so all those kind of pieces that were, I guess, identified as risks in early studies uh, from McDonnell Douglas have kind of proven themselves out to be exactly what people thought. And so over the next 20 years, uh, folks and companies have been looking for solutions to those challenges and essentially enabling to bring the blender wing body to market. Mm -hmm. And why did you think it's a particularly uh, suitable concept for what you're trying to do? Yeah, so two things happened. Um, well, it's really one thing that kind of led to this whole shift in for us as a company into the blender wing body design. So with the kind of uh, emergence of e-commerce, specifically with the rise of the Amazons here in the United States and the Rakuten's JDs on a global level, um, the densities of cargo started to get really low. And so traditional tube and wing airplanes uh, are cubing out on volume before they top out on weight. And so what the industry has been really looking for over the last 20 to 30 years is a more volume-centric design. And so when you actually study a lot of these new generational concepts, you have to move away from a tube and wing to get to some kind of meaningful impact on that. And the blender wing body naturally makes sense. And so essentially taking the blender wing body idea, uh, but then um, specifically focusing it on the, the freight sector where you don't have as much issues on pressurization or egress or... Uh, you know, the, the G loading, as we talked about with the passenger sitting on the outboard side, it kind of solves a lot of those problems naturally. And so I think where the blender wing body was firstly purposed for the passenger markets is really what why it didn't really move forward. But when you're purposed for the passenger market, I'm sorry, the freight market right now with the kind of the new trend with e-commerce, I think it starts to make a lot of sense as a product. But if you're looking for a concept to carry more, let's say, volume-centric cargoes, why not just uh, make a conventional airplane more kind of bubbly, a kind of a bit like the Beluga, what Airbus is doing now with the Beluga, they are uh, repurposing some of the old Belugas to do precisely this sort of large volume, but not necessarily very heavy weight cargo transport. Um, isn't it easier to just take a conventional aircraft and make it wider, but traditional in, in, the, yeah. in the concept? Oh, you totally could. So, I mean, you could buy an existing 737, you know, stack a huge fuselage section on top of it, somehow prove out the aerodynamics and off you go. Uh, the problem is that uh, the other two pieces of the puzzle, specifically sustainability and efficiency. So the Belugas are, you know, there's a lot of drag. It's a lot of frontal area uh, aerodynamically. And so uh, you, you, what you gain in volume, you lose in efficiency. And so the unit economics don't work out quite as well, where they actually break the business if you start thinking about a Beluga. The Belugas are really great in transporting high value cargo and very specialized cargo. So things like, you know, for manufacturing of wings or fuselage sections for Boeing and Airbus, that's really where they found their niche. But uh, operationally wise, when you scale it up, uh, the fuel burn based on the drag alone is kind of destroys those those types of, I guess, uh, aerodynamic concepts. If you make the, the fuselage, you expand it, or you flatten it a bit, it's actually you end up with a blended wing. Sort of, yeah. yeah. So <laughs> the question is, how do you take a beluga and make it more aerodynamic? And the yeah, answer yeah. is, you end up with a blender wing body. 
Yeah. Well, but that's only one of the innovative elements of what you're developing, because there's another one. And it's on the sustainability side, you are working on a hydrogen powered aircraft. And I think you are collaborating with Zero Avia for the powertrain. Well, actually, Zero Avia has been on this podcast twice. Katya Kulinicheva, one, one of the first guests here on the podcast uh, quite a few years ago. And, and then Val, uh, the founder, was also uh, one of the guests last year. Uh, so I'm, I'm quite familiar with the Zero Avia project, and I think you are guys working together to develop also the propulsion for this family of cargo aircraft. Right. So um, the answer is we are. We are and we're excited about what Val and his team and Zero Avia are working on. I think it's incredible. I do feel that they're uh, one of the, the market leaders in this space. Uh, so kind of taking a step back, though, so Nautilus airplanes that are conventionally powered uh, drivetrains right now. So like, as an example, our regional uh, uses PT6 engine technology. Some Pratt and Whitney, our larger products, you know, use comparable GE, Rolls Royce, or Pratt's turbofans. Um, so that'll be our entry into the market. However, we see that sustainability is a very fundamental requirement for the future, especially when you talk to airlines, our future customers. And so, uh, one of the challenges with hydrogen technology in of itself is it's very volume centric. And so, when you take an existing a tube and wing airplane and you start injecting hydrogen technology in these fuel cells, you end up removing a lot of the revenue passenger uh, revenue passengers or the revenue cargo out of it to help maintain mission performance. And so, naturally, an airplane design around e-commerce and more volume centric cargo, uh, we have volume for days. And so, the blender wing body is a natural host uh, or a first kind of instance of how you can inject hydrogen technology specifically these large uh, fuel cell tanks uh, without losing any mission performance or payload. And so we kind of believe that that is, and cargo is actually a very interesting first uh, use case for the technology too. So blend a wing body with cargo uh, is seems like a huge winner for the first instance of hydrogen propulsion and sustainability. Mm -hmm. Do you have a time frame for this hydrogen project or that's something that's kind of vague at this moment? Uh, we're kind of at early phases with Zero Avia. Um, they have their own development timeline um, that they've published. And so we're kind of waiting for a lot of those technologies to mature. Uh, but at the same time, we've started to really look together of how we can marry their propulsion system with our airframe. And so we're leaving room in certain places of the airplane to allow for their technology as soon as it becomes commercially viable and available. Mm -hmm. Right now, you are working on three sizes of this uh, concept. I don't know if they are all just a, a scale-up version of uh, each other or th there are some differences. Can you tell us a bit more about the, all the different types of aircraft that you are working on at uh, this moment? Absolutely. So uh, Nautilus is a family of airplanes. Um, the first one is a regional freighter uh, meant for Part 23 certification here in the United States. A maximum gross weight about 19,000 pounds, uh, powered by twin turboprops. Uh, so it's meant for regional operations. Uh, typical customers would use it for one to two hour flights, uh, meant to connect regional airports to larger hubs. What's very unique about that initial design is it actually is uh, the only airplane of that payload and size category that can carry standard air freight containers. So that is a huge uh, new first for the industry. Uh, the second product is the Elysio. That'll be a 60-ton payload category airplane, uh, more closely comparing to uh, the uh, 767 lookalike performance with or an A330. And that'll be North America, transatlantic, inner Europe, and then inner Asia. And then the flagship product, the one that gets our customers most excited, is the Nords. And that'll be your long-haul trans-Pacific freighter, 100-ton plus uh, payload capability, and that's, uh, essentially connecting Asia, the global manufacturing hub, and e-commerce to, to the rest of the world. So the 100-plus, would that be comparable? I'm just thinking now, 
um, what would be the equivalent in conventional aircraft? Something like an Antonov one to four, something like that. Or... Oh uh, no, we are uh, closer to triple seven, seven triple seven. Okay. Yeah. And then you have the other one would be comparable 60, 60 tons payload that would be comparable to 767 or A330. And what was the payload of the smaller one? It's about four metric tons. Four metric. And that would be roughly comparable to what? To an ATR freighter uh, or something like that? Well, yeah. So uh, we, very closely comparable to like a Beach 1900 or okay. uh, System Sky Courier. But we actually do very well against the ATR as well. Um, mm -hmm. So almost a third of the price you get exactly the same payload so it's it's a pretty good product mm -hmm. and because what's the what's the total addressable market here i guess you are targeting companies like you mentioned ups fedex these type of companies that are moving cargo relatively fast do you have some calculations roughly of what's the size of this market in monetary terms yeah, of course. Uh, so the new freighter market uh, development, which is what we're targeting over the next 20, 25 years, I believe, is $270 billion. And so that's currently a duopoly between Boeing and Airbus, and then now Nautilus, which is bringing in a purpose-built product into the market. So I think we're going to do really well uh, as long as we stay on track and are able to, to make those customer deliveries. $270 billion, that would be the global market or U.S.? Global market. Global market. And what about certification? Because I imagine that's not easy to get certified, particularly because of all the different novelties that you are doing at the same time. So, um, do you have? A, where, where are you now with this process? Um, are you already undergoing some sort of FAA process at the moment? And do you have a time frame for that? Yeah. So, uh, what's really interesting about the product segments that we chose is the Kona, the smaller one regional, is uh, fits in line with Part 23, which is general aviation rulemaking, both in Europe under EASA and, and here under the FAA. And so, it's actually faster to get the product to market. Uh, typical certification timetables look between you know uh, 12 to 24 months, with an average being about 18. Um, so, where Nautilus is right now, we actually already have FAA approval to go fly uh, optionally piloted as well as manned and unmanned out of San Diego, out of Brownfield, where our facilities are, which is very unique to, to our companies. A lot of uh, drone manufacturers have to go into specific test ranges and things like that. But we've been uh, so careful about how we in, uh, inject the technology into the aircraft that we got the FAA comfortable enough that uh, we can actually go fly here uh, in San Diego without leaving uh, leaving home. So, yeah, the conversations have already been started. We'll file the the breadth of paperwork over the next 20 months, uh, so right before first flight. And so um, right now, so 24 months to first flight, and then about 18 months after that for certification, provided that everything goes well. Um, and so uh, entering to market, I believe, is 2027 right now. 2027. That would be for the smaller one, the Kona. Okay. And what about the money? Because uh, certifying an aircraft is not just difficult technically, but also requires quite a lot of money. Um, I My understanding is you are funded by, by some prominent Silicon Valley investors. Um, what can you tell us about the, uh, let's say, the financial side of the project? And are you currently raising more money or you're good for now? Uh, so... Yes, we are backed by some tier one Silicon Valley uh, venture capitalists, um, which is really exciting for us. I think the conversation or the the history and what SpaceX has been able to do to the industry opened up a, a really interesting door to allow projects like ours to exist um, and to be funded by those uh, types of revenue or not revenue streams, but those types of capital insights. But uh, yeah, so a normal business jet program, let's just say in the part 23 category, um, 
most people think it's like a billion dollars. It is not. Uh, so part 23, let's say from uh, pencil through certification, uh, depending on the technology uh, for like a business jet is between 100 and $150 million. For Silicon Valley standards, it's not that much. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it's all relative, right? So uh, we mm -hmm. always joke that it takes $10 million to start an airline, $100 million to start an airplane company, and then $5 billion to start a car manufacturing company. Mm -hmm. So uh, put it all relative, you know, um, there's a lot of car companies being started right now. There's a lot of money floating around. Mm -hmm. As long as the market is there, the traction is there, and, and um, you know, the team is there to actually go and execute with a solid plan. I think you can go find money um, to help finance these large projects, as an example. There's been an example, just to give you a, a little bit of a joke, but uh, Silicon Valley once dumped $100 million into a juicing machine, right? So that we could have built yep. an airplane, instead we started to build juicing machines. So yeah, that's what of... I had in mind. I, I read some of those crazy stories uh, <laughs> about Silicon Valley funding some concepts that, um, well, you read about them and think, well, I don't know. Yeah, um, so I mean... I guess those models are more well understood. It's easier to get to market. Yeah. So uh, it's easier to prove to investors that when you take that large amounts of capital that you can get it done. With mm -hmm. us, you know, bigger infrastructure projects, uh, you have to wait a little bit further before you show those significant milestones. And so a lot of investors don't have the stomach for that. Um, yeah. And so we can talk more about that, but essentially you got to find the right investors who really believe in these big moonshots. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I guess like investors are also looking for the the right team to to be able to to pull off some like the next space spacex or or, or the next uh, um, hardware company as well like next apple of of aviation something like that well you have these investors so you have the idea you are already working on the concept what about the industrial plan uh, let's say you get certified um, you plan to to build it yourselves you have a already a factory where you plan to start working on on building this aircraft uh what's what's a long-term plan here right so a uh, long-term plan is to be a boeing or an airbus look-alike so design build and sell our aircraft uh, we do have a manufacturing facility uh here in san diego already which is perfect for where we are at this stage of the company it'll get us through the first prototype as well as through flight tests and through certification uh, but yes, the big idea after that, or the big question is where, how do you scale up from there to build uh, a manufacturing capacity to be able to deliver airplanes? And so uh, what's really interesting uh, behind airplanes in this company is twofold. The first one is that um, airplanes in general are pretty low, um, I guess, a low manufacturing capacity. So we're not going to be producing thousands of these airplanes per year. Uh, right now, initial capacity is scheduled for about 60 airplanes per year. So what a typical factory actually looks like is uh, just a really big hangar uh, with certain stations. And so you bond the wing together, you produce, you know, uh, sheet metal uh, pieces and you kind of integrate everything together. The company does outsource quite a bit to tier one suppliers that help with the, I call it the Lego piece manufacturing. And so what the company is left with is just final assembly and integration. I guess that would still need a lot of money. So we talk about 150 maybe for certification. Uh, are we talking about hundreds of millions of dollars for an industrial uh, facility of this sort? 
No, I mean, a hangar space like that probably would cost between eight to $10 million. Uh, and then the tooling alone for production would be probably 22 to $35 million and just ballpark numbers off the top of my head. So again, we're not talking $400 million. Um, and the key is because this is low rate production. And uh, the way that the FA thinks about certification still is it's uh, not a lot of automation. And so there's a lot of uh, hand labor, so it really depends on labor rates and just making sure that the key suppliers exist within the, the ecosystem to help you build it. But yeah, you don't need as much infrastructure as, let's just say, car companies, as I mentioned. Um, car companies, you know, need thousands of units uh, per year, really automated, very different type of manufacturing. Mm -hmm. um, you mentioned automation, and that's actually, that's actually one point that I wanted to ask you about because another big let's say, innovative aspect of, of your family of aircraft is that they are designed to be uh, remotely operated. I don't know whether we can call them autonomous because I think they are uh, there's a pilot steering them, but in principle, they would be able to fly without uh, a pilot in the cockpit. Is that right? Yeah, so uh, exactly correct. Uh, the the long term vision of Nautilus is to bring uh, remote pilot operation, or depending how you, what you call autonomy, into into the freight sector. And specifically, it's really important for our customers uh, because there's a huge lack of pilots entering the workforce today, and so uh, they actually can't scale their businesses uh, and help you know uh, scale with e-commerce demand because of there's such a fundamental lack of pilots. And if you talk to pilots, a lot of them would say, I wanna go fly passengers. You know, it's more capital, it's more prestige. This is what I really wanted to do. So flying freight airplanes is not, you know, I would say the top of their list. Um, and so I think a lot of our future customers are thinking about how do you use technology specifically to help alleviate these uh, constraints. What does the FAA say about this? My understanding is that as long as there's someone, a human, steering the, the airplane that can be done right so not allowed yeah. yet to fly fully autonomously with the airplane taking its own decisions with ai or whatever but you can fly remotely as if it was a drone yeah um we we don't like to use the word drone because drone is mostly consumer and that's a whole separate regulatory mm -hmm. base but um what happened is in 2013 uh here in the united states the fa allowed for the first uh, certification basis for remotely piloted aircraft system or RPAS, which is kind of where Nautilus falls in. And um, so we've had this regulator regulatory base for about a decade. Uh, so there's a number of companies that are pursuing certification under this new rulemaking, which is really exciting for us, cutting edge technology, specifically starting out in general aviation. And so the thinking is right now, uh, the, the airplane does fly itself. Uh, so it makes, uh, I guess, flight uh, decisions, but it's being guided along by a remote operator. Okay. And so it's somebody who is also qualified as a pilot of similar experience and rating um, that navigates uh, the airplane through the national airspace system, uh, talking remotely with air traffic control and then managing any emergencies. But uh, because of the latency links between the airplane and satellite communication going down to the remote operator, we don't actually give this remote operator a joystick because you can't really fly that airplane with so much latency and help make those really small tweaks, especially on landing. And honestly, airplanes particularly fly themselves today anyway. I mean, the first airplane flight was 1903. First autopilot installed in an airplane was 1913. So we've had this technology for over 110 years, right? So we were just waiting for the need to develop as well as uh, the regulatory environment. And so lack of pilots, uh, as well as the new generation of FAA rulemaking here in the United States kind of opened up the door 
for this type of solution to airline customers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we actually, we had here in the podcast, Mark Piat of X-Wing uh, yeah. was talking about um, autonomous flight. Is this a technology you are developing in-house or you are um, working with some other technology companies that are working on this type of autonomous flight systems? I think uh, as an well, the bulk of the technology is being developed in-house uh, by our team. Um, I think it's easier to do so because you can marry those technologies directly into the bones of the airframe, which is really important for certification. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, we do believe that there is certain pieces of technology that we can all work together to help develop. Um, a good example might be the detect and avoid system, which is uh, really key, really key parts of this technology. And so. Um, there's not been a lot of very, um, I would say certifiable or readily available solutions on the market today. So there's been conversations internally within the ecosystem to help maybe partner up and, and develop those pieces. Mm -hmm. I remember you recently released some, some images of, of, uh, what you call a pod, uh, it's just like a cockpit, uh, but on the ground from where you can control the aircraft. Yeah, the pod is our first kind of uh, iteration of what a ground control station looks like uh, mm -hmm. for these operators. Uh, we're working directly with our future customer, Ameriflight, uh, to help uh, essentially understand exactly what the operational side of the pod should look like, what screens need to be represented with the pilot, well, how much control we give to the remote operator versus how much do we push towards uh, autonomous or automated uh, operations as well. And then even more importantly, how does that all tie into a normal operation for those types of airline customers? Mm -hmm. So this was, I would call it a alpha version for us. Uh, and there's a lot of still work to do in really maturing that uh, that idea, but uh, we're working really closely with, with our future partners in doing so. So most of the, let's say, the, the small things and the, during, the, during the flight are going to be controlled by the, uh, autonomously by the system itself, but you're going to have a, a human on the ground that's going to be monitoring the flight and will be able to step in whenever it's needed to intervene to to steer the aircraft or to do something with it. Right. Yeah. Maybe would, a, bit, a bit simplistic, but no, no, no. You, you have it right. So uh, I wouldn't use the word steer, but guide the airplane in case. Okay. Of also, in the landings, takeoff, that's going to be a, a human doing it, or yeah. So uh, takeoff and, and landing is going to be automated. There's a variety of reasons why. I mean, you know, uh, it's just the latency links alone just don't allow you to do that. Mm -hmm. So the airplane can make its own decisions. The technology is there, um, and so why not push that onto the airplane? What about the cargo bay? Are are there going to be some innovations there in the when it comes to the up, um, unloading, loading and unloading of the aircraft? Or that's going to be done the traditional way. So uh, it's something that we've been exploring quite a bit uh, with our future customers. There's interesting technologies available out there. The challenge is that um, a lot of the the operations are done by. Um, just they're, they're so, um, I guess I would say, uh, rudimentary right now, and uh, they need reliability more than they need um, uh, more technology within them. So as an example, uh, if, let's say you have a uh, what they call a power drive unit, which is just the motor on the floor, which helps position the, the container in the correct location. So we can have those uh, power drive units, PDUs, move auto automatically the container and lock it into place. But if one of those PDU units gets broken, as an example, the airplane can't dispatch. And so our customers live on reliability and so there is a kind of um, uh, a shifting point, whereas there's too much technology, which creates those reliability issues, which prevents the airplane from dispatching, which hinders operation. And so we're starting to understand those types of pain points. Uh, definitely opportunities exist, but uh, the manual labor uh, process of loading and unloading cargo has been so um, 
so efficient lately that it's there's very little you can do as far as um, increasing more efficiency, if that makes sense. Because how do you load or unload uh, a blended wing body? Is it on the upper part, the lower part of the aircraft, and the side? I, I'm I'm just trying to figure out what is. Is there like a, a the cargo bay opens up? How? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So all of our airplanes have a, a large side loading door ahead of the wing, um, and so it's on the the triangular side of the facet. So large door comes out. There's usually a loading bridge, which allows for a ball mat to essentially uh, merge with a, a high loader or a forklift and things like that, where you can slide standard air-free pallets directly into the cargo base section and latch them up. So it's a very, I would say, almost industry standard interface, but not for specifically the CONUS um, size of airplane, which is something new and innovative, which we're bringing to our customers. Mm -hmm. um, what's the feedback you're getting from the industry? How many orders or pre-orders? I don't know if they are still... Uh, they already firm orders or, or just more letters of intent, but how many aircraft have you quote unquote sold until now? Yeah. So the order book sits uh, at $8.6 billion to date uh, and over 470 plus aircraft across, across the three platforms. Um, so the value of the order book is more largely tied with the larger platforms, but uh, the number of airplanes more closely with the smaller ones. So uh, the industry has been really looking for something like this for a long time. Uh, they've been asking a lot of the traditional OEM players uh, to to really think about this. But, um, you know, those folks are so entangled within the, within the passenger sector that $270 billion doesn't seem like a frothy enough market for them to design a, a separate platform for. And what about the other way around? Uh, do you see some perspective for your aircraft to one day become also a, a passenger carrying aircraft? I think uh, there's opportunities in the DOD space, the defense markets for it first. And then um, as one advisor you know, put it, uh, a good uh, freight aircraft makes for an excellent passenger airplane. So I think there's definitely opportunities um, for our platform to go in that direction. However, we're largely focused on just getting the solution uh, tuned in for freight today. You mentioned defense. Uh, I, think, I think there are some renderings out there. I think a refueling concept. Uh, air to air refueling, I guess cargo as well for the military. That would be another market that you would be in principle looking at. Yes, that's correct. So uh, the platform makes a lot of uh, or brings a lot of value and meets a lot of requirements on the DOD side for uh, aerial refueling tankers. Uh, here in the United States, uh, those tankers are aging out right now. And so there's a large push within the defense budget to start thinking about what is the next generation look like completely separate requirements uh, from what currently is going on. So I don't think you can adapt a passenger lookalike airplane for the next generation of aero refueling. Uh, and the second piece is strategic airlift. Um, and so all three products uh, seem to make a really good fit for strategic airlift for a variety of reasons. And as well as, you know, within the DOD sector, unmanned technologies have a different place than they do in the FAA. So you can really push the envelope in more of the cutting edge technology spaces. So I think uh, there's a bright future for our products in those sectors, for sure. Does this shape give it some stealth benefits uh, to, to the aircraft? Uh, it depends. Okay. <laughs> what are the next milestones now? Because you... Um basically been racking up orders like we had this uh, recent order i think this same week uh just a few days ago um you got an order for a, a few how many uh, of the kona aircraft uh it's eight airplanes i think Aer the order is about 54 something like that million dollars in total uh-huh and you've got already some big operators on board with the concept yeah so what can you name some of the of the companies that have ordered the aircraft to express interest in the aircraft yeah, I think uh, we're still trying to keep our customers kind of um, 
down low uh, for a variety of reasons as okay. we kind of learn a little bit more about their operations. But uh, some of the biggest ones that are made public is Ameriflights. Um, they operate one of the largest feeder aircraft fleets here in the United States. Uh, you know, they see this as enabling technology to allow for more routes uh, and op operating or opening up new revenue streams for the business, um, you know, and helping it grow, which is really important. So they placed an order for over 20 of the Kona regional airplanes. Um, really excited to work with them and really bringing this new technology into a space that, you know, really needs it right now as well. Um, then we have some more, I would say, larger operators that uh, have signed up for orders as well that we just haven't been able to announce just oh. yet. All of them in the U.S. or in other countries as well? Uh, global level. Okay. What are the next milestones? What can we expect uh, next? Yeah, so uh, this is kind of, we're entering a phase of the company where uh, it's, I would say, is exciting on the engineering side, but maybe a little bit more boring on the, the side marker watching of it. Uh, so a lot of the next 24 months is specifically tied to building out the airplane. So uh, purchasing tooling, uh, doing parts manufacturing, turning on suppliers, and kind of getting everything assembled. So it'll get really exciting at marker like 20 months from now, uh, where you start to see what looks like an airplane come together. But uh, over the next year or so, you're just going to see small pieces, you know, scattered around our facility. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned 2027 for uh, certification. That's the goal. Um, what about entry into service? Uh, so that'll be certification and entry into service is 2027. And then first flight is we're hoping, you know, a little bit over 24 months right now based on our time schedule. Okay, very good. Well, wishing you all the best with this uh, very exciting project. Quite a few things here uh, that are very, very interesting on the structure of the aircraft, uh, sustainability, the autonomous flight, also the, the concept of disrupting uh, this whole segment of the industry that is air cargo. People uh, that wish to learn more, where should they go? What's their website, social media channels that they should check? Yeah, so uh, www.nautilus.co is our website. Uh, it's got links to our social media right now. We have a pretty big presence on LinkedIn. Um, the company is hiring. So uh, if you're a young or experienced engineer that likes to work on cutting edge uh, technology, we'd love to talk to you. And uh, yeah, we'd love to see you apply on our website. All right. So you heard it here. Apply. <laughs> Go to the website if you're listening to this and wish to work in this very exciting project. I forgot to ask one last thing. The name, where did it come from? Because <laughs> so, it sounds to uh, me like Jules Verne, sort of. Uh, uh, yeah, there was uh, this kind of futuristic submarine or something was called uh, was called Nautilus, I think, with an U. But that that's what comes to my mind. But maybe it's a different story. No, you had it right. So I'm a big Jules Verne fan, and I love Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea. Um, I really liked. Uh, there's actually a picture in the original manuscript of the book where it's Captain Nemo in Antarctica. And he uh, punches a flag uh, into into the the snow, and it's got um, in Latin, you know, movement within movements uh, is kind of the slogan behind Nautilus. And so, uh, I really like that is movement within movements, uh, and I think it kind of fits really well with our products. Um, unfortunately, I had to take out the U. There was a treadmill company um, with a similar name, and so for ease of the startup, we we decided just to drop it. But the name has been pretty, I think, a good indication of, of where, where our mindset is and, and uh, the future. Very good. Well, thank you very much for your time today. Wishing you all the best with the project. And yeah, thanks so much. Thank you, Mikael. Appreciate it. If you like this podcast, you can support us by giving it a great rating on Apple, Spotify, or whichever platform you get it from. And remember, you can, of course, subscribe to it 
And you can also get regular updates through the Allplane website, that's A-L-L-P-L-A-N-E.tv. We have a newsletter where we cover the aviation industry every week with a special focus on innovation and sustainability. So give it a go. Thank you and goodbye. <laughs>